Hey, what's up, humans? Today on Demystifying Science, we got a real treat for you. This is the first of a multi-part series with famed electric heretic Ivor Cat, pioneer of digital electronics and formulator of the infamous Cat Question, an apparent contradiction in the fundamental laws of electromagnetism. Today, Ivor tells us about his first encounter with institutional censorship, a theme that he became increasingly familiar with during his years of arguing the Cat Question both in the literature and through ongoing and regular correspondences with leading academic physicists. If you're loving the podcast and have the means to help us out, please visit our Patreon page at DemystifySci and give us a push. If you're already a patron, we love you and thank you. It means the world to us. The whole computer understands ones and zeros, but once you get a half in there, uh, it doesn't understand it. Instead of the high voltage being one or a low voltage being zero, it comes in with a half. The next piece of logic gets confused and the computer crashes and leaving no trace of why it crashed. For some reason, I knew there was censorship. So when I fed it into the top institution's top journal, I gave the article a misleading title because, because the glitch was taboo. You were not allowed to talk about the glitch. You go through your education, you're taught stuff, and then you're examining that stuff, but you don't really know it. You know how to pass exams in that stuff, you see. And I think the glitch was too complicated and so it was frightening, so you, you don't get involved. Today we have with us Mr. Ivor Cat, who we've taken to calling a heretic of electrical theory, who has drawn attention to the fact that there is something incomplete about our understanding of electrical current and how it travels in circuits. But before we get to the cat question, we have a preliminary story to tell with Mr. Cat about his experience with the suppression of ideas in industry and academia. Because the first time that Mr. Cat discovered that not all ideas that reflected reality were valuable was when he came across something that he calls the glitch. And so today, we're going to hear the story of the glitch. Thank you for joining us, Mr. Cat. Pleasure to be here. And so what is the glitch, briefly? What is, can you orient us with this story? It began um, something like, well, very thousand years ago, uh, uh, but the uh, present name for it, you could, historically, is Buridan's ass. It, uh, do you want to spell Buridan? B-O-R-O-D-I-D-I. B U R I D E N. Buridan's apostrophe S S S A S S. So you can do that on Google. And um, what the, the, the story is there's an ass, which is a sort of a donkey. And um, there are two um, barrels of straw or hay. And they're over to the left and over to the right at equal distance, 
and the ass cannot decide which uh, barrel of hay to go to eat um, because they're exactly the same. Well, they're nearly exactly the same distance away. And so the, uh, the, the ass starve, starves to death. Now, cat, that's me. Um, adjusted that to uh, there's a bowl of hay and there's a, a bucket of water because the ass or the donkey needs food and also drink. But um, that was a sort of a philosophical idea. But um, I, um, when I left college, I was put to work on the first transistorized computer in Ferranti, in, in Manchester, north of England. And um, it was already designed, and um, it was called Newt. It was an experimental computer, the first transistorized one. And it was called Newt, meaning neurotic. But for marketing reasons, the name had to be changed to Sirius, the Ferranti Sirius. And you can look that up on Google, Ferranti Sirius. Uh, there are two entries on Google. One is the advantages of the Sirius, and the other is something else about Sirius. And you can see the instruction uh, code and so on, and how many bits of data the memory had, because there was more or less no memory um, then, something like 40,000 bits. And um, it was decimal, because um, it took too much programming to translate um, uh, from our decimal into the computer's binary and translate back. So the computer would take our, our decimal. There's that kind of detail uh, about the early computers, which, um, which I remember because I was there, but I'm the only person because I'm 85. Mm. So all the other people who will remember this will be dead, except the Computer History Society uh, will know some of it, uh, but um, I, I'm not linked with the Computer History Society in London. Um, so anyway, I got to um, Ferranti. The company was Ferranti. They're all gone now, the companies I was involved with. And uh, I said to the boss, Charlie Portman, uh, what do I read? Because I just left college. And he said, nothing, it's all new. And so I could, I could look at the logic design. And there was one piece of logic which I thought, what does that do? And nobody would tell me. But um, I worked out for myself that it was to do with Buridan's ass. Mm. Remember, Buridan's ass goes back to the Middle Ages. Now, because the computer used electric current rather than voltages or for some reason like that um, it was always alive things were always happening in the computer so if you wanted to do something you you had to press a button saying excuse me i want to talk to you the problem with doing that was a computer goes clock now clock 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 and in between two clocks, it does a number of things. And then it does, 
after clock, it does another number of things. Now, if you want to say, excuse me, it has to decide if we go clock, 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 whether the, the computer has to decide whether to let you in to this window of opportunity or the next window of opportunity. It has to decide. This is Baradun's ass deciding whether to go to that uh, bowl of hay or that bucket of water. The computer has to decide whether you're too late for it to deal with you during this period, so you deal with it during the next period. And how big were these periods? Yeah, I'm, I'm sorry, my memory is good, but... Um, Not that good. I, I would say one microsecond, but that that might might not be correct. Well, I, th- I guess my question is just the order of time window. The time window, we can talk about a, a millionth of a second, okay? One millionth of a second, the computer would do this. The next millionth of, million, millionth of a second, it would do this. So you think of the... Um, like we used to have when I was young, you used to have this going in a clock. Pendulum. This or this period or this period or this period or this period or this period. Now, the way you can um, study this is take a chair and balance it on two legs instead of four and watch it fall over. And then you try to balance it on two legs as long as you can and you develop a skill and and after a while which i haven't taken because it it becomes not interesting um the chair will stay here's here's i should have a chair you see there's a chair you're you're, a lot of folks (laughs) a lot of folks are listening only too so we'll have to translate to them yeah yeah you, you balance that, and then it falls over, you see. Now, the problem with this is it's short, and so it doesn't balance for long. But if it's long, you'll manage to make it balance for longer. And, um, <clears throat> so um, so you, you will get to understand the chair balancing, and what you'll notice is once you get it to balance for a long t- for a long time, it takes very long to actually fall over. And you notice that it goes very slowly, first of all, you see. For the computer, the problem is um, uh, that it, it's not necessary to come in and say, may I interrupt? to the computer by pressing the button. May I interrupt? Um, the computer has to store that in that information that you are trying to get into the computer, get it to do what you want it to do rather than what it was doing as it kept going, you know, because th- these computers kept running all the time. And um, <coughs> So I was taken off the Ferranti Sirius onto the big computer, the the, the million pound computer, which is the million dollar computer to you. 
and multiply by 30 for the, the money involved. You know, the, the small, serious computer sold for £25,000. That means, you know, multiply by 30, something like a million pounds. That was a small computer. Then I was taken onto the big computer, which is like a £30 million computer today. And I was put on some of that. And uh, I had to do the design for the card reader because we used to have cards that we fed into the computer. And people joked that half of Cat's design was to do with the push button, you know, because I knew you should have this. So all this electronics I was putting in the card reader and people would say half of it was to do with the push button, you see. And I, I told the people on the 30 million pound computer about the glitch. And they said, no, it doesn't matter because computers crash anyway. You see, computers did crash. You know, computers would. And now, uh, for instance, the Sirius, um, which we sold. For... Okay, and so is that, is, that, is that the concern that if you basically come to the computer in the middle, at just the right moment between two clock periods, that it will crash? Yes. Now, now, what you do is you put the fact, the computer puts the fact that you want to talk to it into a bi-stable, uh, like a seesaw, you see, and, um, and you knock it over. And so if you're if you're on one if you're far enough into either clock period that's how it knocks it over but if you hit it in such a way that it maintains that balance between the clock periods it basically doesn't know how to process the request and it'll crash. Yeah, because because when you talk to it uh, you come in with a one but it's a bit too late the, the moment where you say it and so it goes into what we call a bistable uh, two-state thing in the computer, um, but because it's too late, it doesn't kick it over fully to say, hey, somebody wants to do it. So the bi-stable, which is supposed to be at a one or a zero, uh, is left at one half, you see. It's not a one or a zero. Now, the whole computer understands ones and zeros, but once you get a half in there, uh, it doesn't understand it, and that half starts propagating through the machine, which is a logical machine, a computer, but it uses the logic of ones and zeros. Once part of the machine gets a half, you know, which is coming down a wire, instead of the high voltage being one or a low voltage being zero, it comes in with a half. The next piece of logic gets confused and and the whole thing and the computer crashes and leaving no trace of why it crashed hmm. because it's not a logical crash hmm. now now um the problem with um oh my computer serious uh, was um what's called a uh, sort of public um it wasn't scientific we had non-scientific computers, data processing computers, my serious, my, let's say, talk to you, million pound computer. But because that was successful, we made the next data processing computer, which was called Orion. And that was um, sort of 
a million pounds and um i'm i'm not sure where why well, so you you mentioned that your supervisors were sort of concerned that this was just a typical, you know, they weren't concerned, sorry, because they were like, this is just a typical crash, right? What what made it unique? In Ferranti, nobody ever talked to me about the glitch. I said, what is this bit of circuitry for? Nobody would tell me. <clears throat> I studied it. I decided that was to do with Buridan's ass, you see. But nobody in the company talked about this. So um, the people working on the big, let's say, $30 million computer would not talk about it. They said it doesn't exist and you don't need that circuitry. So that the, the, the Franti Atlas, the scientific computer, was going to crash, but it would only crash occasionally. You see. And, and, that, and that's something that people come across all the time, right? I mean, like sometimes computers just crash that's that's kind of a fact of life yeah and those but those are logical crashes is what you're saying and those are things that they could deal with they could diagnose them as they were happening but this is a sort of no, no, no computers broke down all the time anyway uh, in the case of the Sirius, uh no in the case of orion the, the problem was orion would break down some component would fail every two hours every three hours and it took you an hour to repair the computer you see so so it wasn't practical Sirius proved the the, the technology uh, and so we're going to make the big machine the orion using the same technology but Sirius was breaking down components were failing every 10 hours so you could say in the case of orion it was going to break down every hour, but it was taking two hours to repair it. So Orion was not a, a viable product, you know, because it would break down more frequently than you could repair it. And it was going to market and it was sold. So, um, and, and the same applied to the Atlas. And, and you didn't own a computer, you had time on the computer. You brought your program to the computer and waited in line and fed it in and you paid your $300 an hour for the time on the computer. You didn't own the computer, they were too expensive, you see. And all of that is historical, isn't it? Because probably, I don't know if it's even remembered now, that it was a totally different environment. Anyway, um, the... Uh, so the glitch, you take it to your boss, you, you, you find it in this smaller system, you take it to your bosses when you're on the larger project, and the 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 Orion is what the the larger machine was called. Larger business machine, not the scientific machine. That one was but, the Atlas. But um, no, the the really big scientific machine was the Atlas. Mm. The bigger business machine was the Orion. But um, that the this whole business of computers breaking down is nothing to do with the glitch. So we need to return to the glitch because we're supposed to be talking about the glitch. Now, uh, I then gave up um, because um, the, the British were getting out of high technology because high technology would cause unemployment. And so we didn't want things like computers. Mm. So I went, I went to America. Like they were threatening the labor force or something like that? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, 
uh, and nobody considered that foreign high technology might cause unemployment in Britain. I've never heard that idea. It was also the, the problem of political control by Oxford humanities against um, Cambridge science. Hmm. You know, more or less half of the prime ministers in England don't come from Oxford. They come from Balliol College, Oxford. It's very much a local thing. So I went to America because that's where computers were being developed. And I carried the information about the glitch with me. And I, I went to Los Angeles and worked on other projects. But um, after a while, I got to Motorola in Phoenix. And um, every time I came to a new company, because I used to get fired, um, I would have to tell everybody about the glitch, you see. And that, that was tiresome, and people didn't want to know, didn't understand. So um, I decided to um, publish a paper in the top journal. Now, I was only, you can work out the age. Uh, I was born in 1935, so. Now, I went to America in 62. So it was in 64. Um, I said, I'm going to publish an article about the glitch in the top journal in 1964, which means I was 29. Now, for some reason, I knew there was censorship in science technology. I don't understand why I knew that, because at the age of 29, you don't know that. So when I fed it into the top, institution's top journal. I gave the article a misleading title because, because the glitch was taboo. You were not allowed to talk about the glitch. And why, why was that? Do you, do, you have, do you sort of have a vision for why it was something that you couldn't talk about? Because it seems like something that's so straightforward. You point out that, you know, there's this, there's this problem with the, the way that the computers are being clocked and people can just work out a way of being clocked. Like somebody could even sell different, a mechanism for clocking computers. It seems, it's... Yeah, it's did you have a sense for why it was not an interesting problem to the engineers that were working on those systems? Now, we understand this better post-COVID because if you watch an epidemiologist on COVID, for 15 minutes on YouTube, and then you watch a, a virologist on YouTube for 15 minutes, you realize that they, they don't know each other's work. You, you know, I, I didn't realize until recently that the simpler thing to say is nobody knows much about their own speciality, and they know even less about anything else. Everybody is covering up all the time. I didn't know that. You know, I thought that um, that engineers knew a bit of history of history of science, sociology of science, philosophy of science. I didn't know that a high level um, scientist didn't know history of science. Maybe he had never heard of Galileo. You see, I, I, I thought that, uh, that that people did their homework. You know, if they were employed in a certain field, that that they knew a bit. They didn't only work at getting promotion, you know, which is a different activity from learning the history of your, your profession. Or the so, you, so it seemed like everybody thought it was somebody else's problem? Is that what you're hearing? Or I'm kind of more thinking that people figured that it was small enough that it didn't, that it would happen rarely enough that it didn't warrant the effort. No, 
I, I now think that um, it's too difficult for them. Hmm. Uh, I, uh, and they, when they were educated and throughout their life, uh, they were parrots. You know, you go through your education, you're taught stuff, and then you're examining that stuff, but you don't really know it. You know how to pass exams in that stuff, you see. And I think the glitch was too complicated and so it was frightened, frightening. It was not published, so you, you don't get involved. And it seems like it seems like there's this element of it being untraceable as well, right? Where you're saying that unlike uh, other computer crashes, this was not a logical crash of sorts. Like you wouldn't know that this was the root of the crash and you could blame it on something else. Is that correct? Correct. Now, so anyway, I've got to Motorola and I gave my article a misleading title and I'll tell you the title. Time lost through gating of asynchronous logic signal pulses, you see. That's a good title. That doesn't say computers are going to crash. Okay. Airplanes so will that, fall out of the sky. But, so that was the only article on the glitch that was published for 10, 20 years because it got through the peer review um, cartel. You know, peer review is to make sure that something a little bit different or too complicated or too advanced is not published. So you don't publish scientific advances or technological advances. You publish what does not threaten all the professionals in that particular field. I know that now. So anyway, um, uh, I, I published, and so every time I got fired or sometimes I used to just go to another job for another reason not because I was fired you know you definitely go when you're fired anyway uh, <laughs> it would be quite the thing if you stayed after you got fired you know you just sit down in the lobby and you never leave now um in Motorola there were political problems um I don't remember but they had to get me out for a week or two while, while they did their politics you know. mm. and so they sent me to Chicago and um, I, although I, you, is it called R&D still does everybody know R&D search mm -hmm. and development so I, I go up to Chicago to an exhibition where the R&D men don't go you know they hide away in, in, in the background in their employers so I'm standing in front of um, something you know which Motorola is selling, and um, <laughs> Cheney and Littlefield came by. You see, Tom Cheney and Warren Littlefield came by from the University of Washington, St. Louis, and and now it was like um, early Christians would do a a fish on the sand. You know that mm -hmm. you draw the outline, and so you'd get the message. So, you, because it was embarrassing, the glitch, you know, nobody wanted to know. Why was it, I, that's what I don't understand. Like, why was the glitch so embarrassing? It yeah, just seems like. Oh, oh, in Motorola, um, Wally Raisinin, who was sort of my boss, and above him was Jan Narud. Wally Raisinin said, you must not publish anything on, on the glitch, because um, that will mean uh, our computers because our computers went far, our integrated circuits went faster than anybody else's. And so 
we'd be more exposed to, to, to the glitch because we had faster computers. It, it was getting worse as computers got faster, the glitch. And, uh, but fortunately, I'd already got it out to the institution, the, in, the IEEE, Institute, Institute of Electrical and Electronic Engineers, uh, 500,000 members, New York, you, you know, I've got it out. Uh, that was time lost through gating of, and that got through the, the peer review cartel. Whereas what, Warren, Littlefield and Cheney had been worried about the glitch, but they could not publish because you're not, you're not allowed to publish. And it was very frustrating that that was their subject, but they couldn't publish. But they meet Cat standing, trying to sell diodes or something. <laughs> he shouldn't be trying to sell anything because he's in R&D, but he's been pushed out for political reasons <laughs> while they do their politics, you know, for a week or two in Motorola. And um, so we went down to coffee and we got talking and it was not fun for them because that was their property, the glitch. In Now, the reason it was their property was, was um, Jerry Cox, uh, Professor Jerry Cox, Jr. You know, you, that's what you call people. You call people Jerry Cox III, don't you, as well. It's quite extraordinary. This is an American thing. Hmm. Um, so Jenny Cox, Jr. was building computers which would be put on people who'd had a heart attack. And um, what you do is you, you look at the heartbeat and... Um, the heartbeat shows you that there's a, another heart attack about to come, you see. So the computer rings a bell and uh, the nurse rushes over and gives you the jab. If you give him the jab all the time, you, you kill him, you know, so you only want to give him the jab. Now, he wanted his computer to work all the time, you see. <laughs> that is but, admirable. But he knew from... Uh, Cheney and Little, Little, Warren Littlefield about the glitch, you see, so he, he was interested. So, um, so um, they, they, uh, yeah. So you're having coffee with them, you're, you're selling diodes, you take a break, you go get, get some coffee. Yeah. But that was my link with the University of Washington St. Louis. Now, um, in University of Washington St. Louis, Charlie Mulder, who, who was sort of ex-Hungarian, because Americans are not Americans. They come from various places around the world, you know. Um, he and Jerry Cox organized a conference on the glitch, you see, many years later. And, uh, and, and because I was the only person who published on the glitch, then this is quite a few years later, I had to be invited. Now, I'd, been, I'd given up on computers because they were not advancing the way I thought they should advance, uh, and I was a school teacher. Um, but, but the Pentagon paid, because it was very expensive to fly then, not like now, paid for me to fly from England to St. Louis, and I was, I, what's he called? The man who comes from the hills, you know. Um, so, so I was coming in from from nowhere like you come from and um i was the um the i was sort of the king of the two-day conference because i was the only person 
who published on it. And um, what was the conclusion of the conference? So you basically, what year is this, by the way? So you're talking about '64. You published the paper. Um, what year are you in in Chicago selling diodes? 64. 64. Okay. And so what year is the conference? Now the conference is maybe 10 years later. Okay. So 10 years later, you're back in England, no longer working in technology. You're working no. as a teacher. And then the Pentagon, how, how does this happen? The Pentagon contacts you and is like, Mr. Cat, your country it needs you? It costs money to fly somebody from England to, to St. Louis. And I, I don't know. I get the impression the Pentagon paid, you see. So I arrived. And um, and uh, was in the two day conference. And um, but before the conference, I'd written an analysis of the politics of knowledge, and um, I, I kept silent because I was playing the guru. You know, I was silent for two days during this. Conference. <laughs> at the end, it's called a shibboleth. You know, I was becoming a shibboleth. You know, you have these people who are you're just carrying signs, selling diodes. No, 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 no. The no, the the, <laughs> the man who's even above the professors. You know, is, you have to do that. So I had a, a write up on the politics of this, and um, after after one morning, I couldn't sleep properly, so I went out walking, and um, and uh, Colleen also couldn't sleep because it's quite it gets you keeps you awake this kind of thing without walking and um he he gave me a copy of coon's book which had just been published two two years before hmm. and i realized what i'd hand that out was coon i developed the same the same series as coon and that meant i'd plagiarize coon you see because coon but Kuhn had only come out 1962, um, two or three years before. And uh, so that, that was rather embarrassing that I handed around what was obviously plagiarism of Kuhn. <laughs> <laughs> because it was what Kuhn said, but I'd come to the same. T.S. Kuhn. Oh, and which, which ideas? In, yeah, go ahead. Sorry. sorry, sorry. T.S. Kuhn, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, 1962. Go ahead. By the way, he stole it. He stole the, the thesis from Polanyi. Um, go, ahead. go ahead. Oh, you're just talking about this—the idea of the resistance to paradigm shifts and suppression of unpopular ideas. It had that. It had the. It had the whole. Thing. <laughs> but I've never heard of Kuhn. I've never heard of Polanyi. You see, I didn't know. Um, and so, what was the result of the conference? Well, well, nothing. So all these people get together, they talk about the glitch, they're oh. like, there's definitely a glitch, and then they just all go home? Like, what? No, 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 no. Um, IBM was the big company, and, um, uh, and uh, so they sent two, two men, and, the, and, and Malna, I tell you, he's politically quite adept, so the conference was up in the hills somewhere, you know. And so we were all trapped there, <laughs> you know, and couldn't couldn't escape. But the IBM men didn't want to spend the night there. They wanted to be in a hotel so they could escape because you can't 
you couldn't go back to the big IBM company talking about the glitch because the glitch the glitch would mean IBM computers crashed you see so okay my question is this was there an easy solution to the glitch or was it an inescapable problem of digital circuits it is an inescapable problem if one part of the computer um, is asynchronous uh, to another part of the computer. Now, come forward in time uh, to uh, computers flying airplanes. If you have one computer flying an airplane, it's all right for this point of view. But because a computer might crash, you have three, you see. And so one, and that comes later in time during the glitch, that one computer might say a little more lift, another com the other computer a little less lift. So they've got to agree that they're disagreeing, but they mustn't talk to each other, you see. So you can either have one computer flying an airplane, which is fine, except that that computer might crash, so the plane crashed, or two computers or three computers flying a plane, and they might get the glitch and so the plane would crash and do you suspect that this may have happened at some point yeah 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 but but that all right we'll leave we'll leave st louis and we'll go forward um so many years later i'm um uh, because i'm too old to be a proper engineer and i haven't been promoted so i was a what's called a contract engineer and they like to call themselves consulted engineers and I was in uh, GC, the old dying company, which was enormous, um, uh, in, in Stanmore. And I heard that in Rochester or Chatham, they adjacent, uh, they were doing electronics onto aeroplanes because Boeing um, did, did this, uh, no, somebody did the electronics in planes and and before that when when the pilot pushed these levers the wires would go back to the control surfaces you see but but we've gone over to uh computers uh looking at the pilot's movement and converted into into electricity and send the signal down wires down to the back of the airplane you see and the control was analog. That is, if you say a little more lift, you'll say 5.3 volts instead of 5.2 volts. They were analog computers. And GC, although they were an incompetent company, they'd successfully done analog control of aeroplanes, you see, with analog signals, where you don't say, like we now say, when we give a number, we say, one zero one one zero one zero one zero one zero. You'd say three point four volts or three point five volts or three point. So they were successful. So Boeing, because GEC had been successful, gave the new um, uh, uh, electronics to GEC, but it was digital. You see, so planes had been controlled by analog signals down wires, but now it was going to be you're going to send the one zero one zero one 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 down to the back back of the plane, uh, and 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 you mustn't send a half or whatever. So um, 
I heard that GC, GC in Rochester or Chatham, depending on which town you give the name because they're right next to each other, were doing um, the electronic control of the next aircraft, you see. So somehow I got a job down there as a contract engineer or to sound superior as a consultant engineer. Mm, mm -hmm. uh, and I went down, I used to go down each week because, you see, you see, it was it was a stall aircraft, short takeoff and landing aircraft that that was going to use these computers because up till then, uh, and uh, it was during the Vietnam War, and um, and the point was when you bring brought freedom and democracy to the Vietnamese, um, as you you were landing and taking off. The natives didn't understand that that they needed freedom and democracy, and so they shoot at you. You see, so um, you you had to, and you had a a short landing strip because it's in the jungle, you know, and and you you'd land on this short, and and then you take off, you see, to get away from the people to whom you're bringing freedom and democracy, <laughs> and um, and. You've got to get high as soon as you can. So you have as much lift as possible, you see. But that means you're right next to stalling, you see, and the pilot's not fast enough. So you use a computer to, to control the aircraft. And so were these the first aircraft that were digitally controlled like this? Because I feel like now takeoff and landing. Yeah, that's right. Yes, right. Uh, GC had done the analog control, and so they could do control of aircraft using wires rather than uh, using electric currents down wires rather than real wires and um and and now they've got the job so i i, I thought well because because we're heading for a third world war i, I mean so so I, I got a job there although it was inconvenient and used to go down to rochester let's call it Rot rochester and spend the, the week there and then come back home and but because i was a contract engineer earning more than the real engineers you know the real engineers were hostile so we were hidden down in town in a way <laughs> and, and kept away from the real engineers so as they wouldn't go on strike you know um and um but i i did go up there because i wanted to find out what they knew about the glitch you see the point was the point was would the stall aircraft crash you know the 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 one bringing the freighter bringing freight uh to to the vietnamese in that local village or town and did you have a mechanism for the likeliest way that these uh fast takeoff and landing planes would encounter the glitch because you said before that it's like... So we... oh, no, no. The, the, I'm sorry. Sorry. The, the, the plane had three computers. Right. And so in what condition would those three computers result in a glitch? Statistically, there would be a glitch and the, and the plane would crash. And the, the, the reason that there statistically would be a glitch is because they were all clocked on separate computers. And so they would try to be communicating with each other and then sort of come up against each other in the wrong 
moment and start off this sort of untraceable yeah, we'll just get error. Hung there, I guess. Yeah. You can't have one computer flying there. Right. It might fail. Sure. You have three, but if you have three, um, they have to discuss with each other uh, whether it wants a little more lift or a little less lift. You know, uh, and 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 so it's yeah. in that discussion that you imagine that there the glitch could happen. Because when a computer wants to talk to another computer, you see, they can't all have the same clock. Why? Because otherwise they're, they're not independent. The whole point of having more than one computer, mm. if one computer fails, the other two outvote it. But, not, but, but what if the clock fails, you see? Mm-hmm. So you have to have separate clocks, separate mm-hmm. clocks. So um, anyway, were there any crashes that happened in Vietnam there that made you suspect that it was potentially related to this glitch? This was the first um, digitally controlled airplane, right? Mm. So no history of this, right? I see. Com- airplanes were not flown by computers. Right. And so over the over the time of the Vietnam War, over the time that they were using these airplanes. Did you ever hear of a crash? Oh, no, sorry, sorry. In the end, that project was abandoned mm. after I'd left, but that's future in the story. All right. I, I mean, I, in between, I was fired, you, you know, so that, that's later. Um, so um, anyway, I went up to the airfield where the, the, the proper engineers were employed. and But I, I was what's now called a software engineer, um, which I wasn't really. You know, I just wanted to get a job down there to find out whether what they knew uh, about the glitch. And I went up there, and uh, although I was software, which I'm not, I went to the hardware man, uh, and uh, I got hold of the diagrams, and I talked to him, and... Um, I found he didn't know anything about the glitch, you see. So it's true that in due course, the Stoll aircraft would crash, you see. But remember that the project was abandoned later on. Uh, I hear from word of mouth that, that, that the project was abandoned because I, I'm gone. And um, he didn't know about the glitch. And, but then the, the head of uh, hardware engineering was very important because you could tell he was would rush to and fro down the corridor looking very important see so um i got in into his office and i i started questioning him on the glitch and um it, it wasn't good anyway so after a while <laughs> i can he, only imagine he was, after his, his name was pierce oh by the way the, the man who, that i got the diagrams from was called Mr. Death. No, he wasn't. Mr. Yeah. Death? No, no, Mr. Diaz. <laughs> I called him Mr. Death, you see. Now, the, the man who was in charge of hardware <laughs> was, I think, called Pierce. You can see this in my article. I think the names are there. Uh, and, and what did these conversations, how did these conversations go? Were they something like, hey, there's a problem you no, should know about? With Pierce, with the chief engineer. And no, it wasn't good. So I went, but then he reported that I'd been seen coming out of a reserved area at midnight, you see, which was not true. 
but um, he had to get me out of there. So, and I was fired, you see. But hold on, hold on, hold on. I, hold on. I want to know what it was like to tell these people of this problem. Did they respond? Did they tell you that you, hold on, did they tell you that you were foolish? Or did they tell you that there was no possibility that this was true? Did they deny it? Did they claim that they had taken care of it? What was the response from these people? So, all the four things you've mentioned. Okay. There would be one or more of those responses. Yeah, you, you've got it. Um, and so I went home uh, back 100 miles, you know, and uh, I thought, well, um, uh, I can't really leave this. So I started writing to more and more superior people in the company because the company was enormous. And I got all the way up to a high level. Uh, and he wrote me a letter saying, um, no, you should not be concerned. Uh, our experts say, Blah, 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 you see. So I wrote back and I said, I am your ex. <laughs> <laughs> and and that, that's the last I heard of it, you see. But the, the point was that, that, <laughs> that, that if the Stoll aircraft crashed or if enough of them crashed, uh, that would be all right. You'd kill just two or three people. But if none of them crashed, then all we've proven this system and it would go into passenger airliners, you see. Uh, 500 people dead. But if none of the passenger airliners were in planes that crashed, it would go into the Polaris nuclear submarine computer. And the computer in the Polaris would crash and, and start the Third World War. You see, so, uh, so the Polaris missile, the the Polaris submarine was designed in such a way where if the computer well, crashed, it would fire the missile. That seems like a bad. That seems like a design flaw. No, no, the 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 glitch statistically causes the crash of the computer. Now, if uh, that particular computer, uh, like the freighter, only carrying carrying freight if none of them crash then that will prove that system good engineering you know experience and it would go into um passenger aircraft if none of them crashed it would be even more proven that there was no problem and it would go into the polaris submarine and did that play out? Did it end up in passenger planes, and did it end up in the in the nuclear missiles? No, no, we haven't had a third bubble. Right, because so, so for me, I'm like, okay, so hold on. If the submarine no, no, computer no. crashes, the submarine just crashes, right? Well, it's the missile oh, no, system. This, we don't know the relationship between the computer in the Polaris missile uh, ship and the, the mechanism for firing firing off the, the nuclear bomb, you see. So you would, yeah. you, would, you would hope that they would design it in such a way that if the computer crashed, it would not fire a missile, but then at the same point, it could be designed in such a way that it would fire the missile if the computer crashed. This is real-life Dr. Strangelove. Yes, not good. That's what I was facing. That's what I was facing. I was facing the Dr. Strangelove situation. So I had a responsibility to... to I had to cover my own moral position, you see. So I had to make reasonable effort 
to, to flag up this such subject, but you could not publish on it, you see. A anyway. Um, so are, is the, are the Polaris missile subs still in operation? I don't know. But in, remember back in St. Louis in the two-day conference, Kotak mm -hmm. um, was in the conference and he designed the computer which was in the Polaris missile. Mm. And he said at the beginning of the conference, the two-day conference, there's no problem. But towards the end of the conference, he, and it was digital. The computer was a digital. The company, I think, was called Digital. At the end of the conference, he said he, he, he agreed there was a problem and he would not dare try to explain it to his boss. That's interesting. Mm. And That's Kotak. Now, K, I think it's K-O-T-O, whatever. Yeah. So, so, all, all these, so when, when I was flying back uh, from uh, St. Louis, uh, I decided, um, I call it the glitch, and this had to be a movie. You, you've got to bypass all the scientists, all the technocrats, and get to the public. You see, so that absorbed me for many years. And um, Chris Penfold got very interested in, in a very successful TV playwright. But, uh, and it ended up dribbled down to a two-hour uh, um, program. Uh, it's called Midsummer Murders. And have you heard of Midsummer Murders? Mm -hmm. Yeah, well, one of the, the two-hour things in Midsummer Murders is, is the glitch. But it, but it's um, it, it doesn't really fully uh, um, uh, deliver the. Case. No, there's like a lot of murders and s small town intrigue yeah. and. So yeah. what? How did this make you feel? Uh, how are you feeling? Like when you when you started to discover that all of these people were just sort of trying to like protect themselves and their their careers. Did it surprise you? Like where? What was? What was? What were you feeling? <laughs> I was feeling that it was very interesting and um and uh yeah that the point was um because when people came to me when I was sitting at my desk you know and said oh what are your roles in this company and I would, would always say well of course it's 90 percent political you, you know because I got very interested in in because uh, in America it was different from England. Um, in in England, um, if you told management that this project had to be abandoned, they'd say thank you very much and put you on other projects. I thought they would, but in Los Angeles, if if you went and told told your bosses to tell their bosses that the project had to be abandoned. The top bosses would say thank you very much and fire you. All, you see, <laughs> they're like, "We'll find someone who'll do it." I, I didn't know that, but that's another subject. But um, but um, yeah. so you were too, you were kind of too busy getting fired to really have your feelings hurt about this. It seems like no, because I kept getting fired. Um, that led to my first book. Mm. You know about because because I came back to England. And we couldn't afford to fire each other all the time. England was poor, and it's very expensive to, 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 like in America, everybody was working at holding on to their jobs, not at doing their jobs. Get get the other person fired first, you know, which 
I was not, I, I didn't know about this, you know, so I, I, I wrote the book later on and it was published in six languages. It was very successful. And this, uh, this, so what I, was, I, what was the name of the book? It was not my name. Um, and because I'm not egocentric, but, um, this, the Sylvia Porter column in the USA, a syndicated column said we had Parkinson's law. We had the Peter principle. Now we have the cat concept. You see, and um, what's her name in in Putnam? No, in um, got excited about this. You know, would be a bestseller, and she cabled me because you used to cable. Mm. If you were important, you'd send cables, not letters. You know, what what about a book? What about a book? Uh, and I was back in England. That meant forty percent of my American salary, and by then I had a lot of children. You know, I, I needed money, and so so I thought. Uh, I studied, I decided that of the organization, the Peter Principle, Parkinson's Law, I did a calculation that each author got 200,000 pounds, you see, which would solve all my problems. So I, um, I asked for, yeah, so, I, so I, I wrote half the book. And I hadn't read Writers and Artists Yearbook. So I didn't know that you're supposed to send it to one one publisher and then they don't reply or they don't send it back and after two months you send it to another publisher and they don't reply and another so after a year or two you decide you're not an author you know because nobody <laughs> likes it so i made i made 20 copies of the first half of the book you see and i sent it to 20 publishers you see and um the London people ignored it. But this publisher in New York got excited about it. So, so I thought, oh, I, I'll, write, I'll write the rest of the book. See. Now, Arthur Fields was working for, um, for Putnam. He was chief editor. And um, he was about to be fired, you see. So he got this half a book about how expensive it is to fire everybody all the time because you, know, you, you have to pay people more you see mm. if you if you're probably going to fire them and um so uh so he uh he said i want the book and and, and he thought the book was fully written and i'd only written half of it you see so he said i want the full book uh 750 pounds now 750 pounds when you deliver the copy, you see, which was, you, you've got to multiply that by 30 now, you know, to know. So I, I, I knew now I was, I was an author. I was not an engineer. I was an author. And, um, and so uh, I got six, six, four weeks unpaid leave and went home to write the second half of the book, you see. I'd never written a book. I'd written a number of chapters, you see, to a book and send it to everybody and um it was the middle of winter and i got a and and i thought parkinson's law peter principle it's just silly that they have one idea for the whole book i said you should have a new idea for each chapter i thought you see it's very ambitious so so i i i went in this little um hut on the edge of the house uh, trying to come up with new ideas you see and because it, it was flu season, 
so I'd catch the flu, particularly under the stress. So I had to come up with one new idea each day, you see. And uh, yeah, it was hard, but, but what you're going to do? You're on 40% pay. You've got all these children. Oh, and, <laughs> and we, were, we were on the um, rising in the social scale, which meant private education, mm. you know, which an engineer couldn't, because engineers were on half pay compared to real, real people, you know, like doctors and, and solicitors and, uh, and so on, who were, who were the real upper class. Engineers were down here, you know. This is before people like Bill Gates mm. and, um, and, uh, and uh, so I had the chance of getting some money even though I was an engineer and uh, so anyway I set up the the caravan we had an enormous caravan and I put the heating in it and I would go in because every time there was a noise it would distract me from getting the new ideas so I wasn't distracted when I was out of the house and I had to get get all these new ideas anyway after four weeks i had all the chapters but i didn't know how to do the book you see uh, and in the end i just gave up and said well now um, and arthur fields got them and he had to publish because what i was describing was happening in putnam in his publishing house you know minton the president of putnam was destroying putnam because he was hiring and firing people all the time. Mm. See, and he was about to fire uh, Arthur Fields, you see. So Arthur Fields, I, I went down, yeah, because I, I, I'd been flown to St. Louis, remember, at high expense. So on the way home, I stopped off near New York with some friends. Now, if you look at the globe, if you go from St. Louis to London, New York is on the way, you know, it's not way north. So, so, so I didn't pay more for that. And uh, <laughs> so, so, I, so I, I went to Putnam, I, I went in time. And then, because my friends lived, say, 20 miles from London and New York, but, um, but I went into, um, I, I got out of the bus in New York and I went out dawn. I thought, what's going on here? You know, it's quite frightening because I've been frightened twice in my life. Once, <laughs> one, once in, in Naples and the next time in New York. Now, um, years before, I'd lived near New York. I used to wander through Harlem perfectly comfortable. But when I flew back, you know, it had gone down, you, you know, and, and one policeman was dying every, each week or something like that. And um, they, you didn't see a policeman on his own. This, I, I dare not go in the, in the, what we call the underground, the subway. Uh, it was just so dangerous. What year was this? <laughs> Approximate? Uh, it was 64, because it's the conference, right? Okay. Yeah. So, um, so. Um, what happened in Naples? No, that's when I was on my motorbike when I was 20. And that, and that was, that was frightening. In the north of Italy, they'd, they'd say, oh, where you go? You go down the south of Italy. And they all said, no, you get all your stuff stolen. In the, the Italians would say, you get all your stuff stolen in the south of Italy, you see. And we carried on to the south. 
and they were wrong. I only got half my stuff told <laughs> in, in Sorrento, in Sorrento. And, and then we got up to Naples and, and, and just frightening. And, and, and then, then when we got, because I had another fellow w- with me on another motorbike. We were going around Europe and uh, he didn't have much time. Time, so we we did Europe in three weeks. You know, oh boom, my goodness! You, you know, two weeks or something. But um, so we were in Naples. But you see, um, recently I've been in Naples, perfectly comfortable. You know, now in the case of New York, uh, I didn't know that when the, a, a, a city went down like that, it could be retrieved. You, you know, and Giuliano, Giuliani, Giuliani. And since then, I, I can wander around New York. I did. Nobody talks about this, do they? But, I think but, they you know, do. That becomes dangerous and then becomes safe again. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a cycle. Psych- I think that it's a There's cycle. A lot of stories. We yeah. were there. We were there. There was a lot of stories. Yeah, of like what New York used to be and what it isn't anymore, and now it's changing again. And anyway, we're supposed to be on the glitch. Um. <laughs> we so yeah. So you published this book, which so I'm looking. This is the cat concept. Yes. And the cat concept is, it's a book about the glitch? Or it sounds like it's not a book about it, the glitch. That's the problem. It's about higher and five. <laughs> there you go. So now, higher and five has nothing to do with the glitch. So you're, you're getting deflected from... So how does the story of the glitch end, right? It's, it seems like you come to this point where you've, you've gotten to the top of these companies that are building airplanes, that are putting computers into things. You've, you've talked to the guy who's building the computer system for the Polaris submarine... You point out to all of them that the glitch is possible. They're all kind of varying degrees of, you know, maybe, but go away. And what's the resolution of this? Do we still live in a world with the glitch? Is my computer crashing because of the glitch ever? Are there planes falling out of the sky? Now, um, we can get on to something else, which is called um, software engineering. And you, and you do a you do a university course in in software engineering, and there's no engineering in it. It's program. It's what we used to call programming. You, you, you know, we haven't mentioned that the dualism of software and hardware um, in this interview. I, I I I'm hardware. Now it 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 is true that once when I was a college lecturer. I did give lectures on software, but that's not my subject. And um, and so, um, come on, get me back to where I was. So what is, what is the conclusion of the story oh, of the glitch? If you go and do a degree course in computers, uh, you will not, well, you will not get any hardware. Sure. All right? And this is, a hard, this is fundamentally a hardware problem. You won't even get any hardware. So you certainly won't won't be warned about the glitch. So people going around having degrees in computer science will not know anything about the glitch, but they won't know anything about any hardware. You see that they're twice removed from the glitch. Is the is the sort of now, sorry? Oh no, go ahead, go ahead. Now, now two Boeing aircraft crashed. One was in in, in the Pacific. These are Malaysia Airlines? Yeah, I don't know. Oh, there was, and there was an Ethiopian one as well, I believe. That could be the glitch, but we don't know. I'm out of date on this. 
you know, I, I, I was out of the glitch uh, decades ago. What well, is... There's been a lot more than two aircrafts that have crashed since then, I'm sure. But I think that they've traced all of the... Right, because, I mean, like, aircraft, when they crash, there's a process of figuring out why it is that they crashed. I'm, I'm now, sure there's a few of them for which uh, there's n numerous probable causes. He's looked at every single airplane crash that's ever happened, which is why we don't fly anywhere. So he's he's an expert. Actually, I flew like two weeks ago. <laughs> this is um, now. We did. That's true. Well, so I guess my thing is this: so people aren't learning about hardware; they're not learning about the glitch, but. Is it possible that computer systems are sufficiently redundant now that this isn't a problem? If you make it redundant, you make it worse. Mm. There are more asynchronous interfaces. Now, what I wanted to mention was to give this status. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm now giving myself status. I, I'd left all this. I was, although it was a significant status, I was principal engineer, unfortunately, in a, no, principal lecturer. I think it's AL at the end, not LE. You know, principal might have two meanings. Um, and, um, and there was a conference in, uh, in uh, Holland. There was an international conference and they'd, um, had um, invited the man who wrote the editorial in Wireless World, unnamed person, uh, the new bureaucracy, because software is, is the bureaucracy today. You know, it's bureaucratic. It's the bureaucracy taking over mm. society with all their forms and all their, their nonsense. And um, the reason I mentioned this was uh, the people organizing this international conference, computer conference, invited the man who wrote that editorial in Wireless World, which was high prestige. And so um, I, I'm employed as principal lecturer. And um, uh, that's another story. So I fly across to um, Utrecht. And um, now the biggest name in computers in the world was Dijkstra, D-I-J-K-S-T-R-A. Um, and he might still be the biggest name because he came up with um, DefProc or Proc, which I'm not familiar with. And um, he, so he was a brains and I was one of the high prestige five people on the stage in the conference at the end. You know? Now, Dijkstra was so famous that everything he said had to be profound, you know, because that's, that's what happens when you're famous, everything you say. So he, he was more or less tongue-tied because he, he, he couldn't say profound things all the time. But anyway, um, he wrote a report on this conference and he said the big point, I was very bored going back uh, to Holland, you know, because like people do, he, he was now in America, you see, uh, and it was all very boring. The high point was meet, meeting Ivor Cat, mm. blah, 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 you know, and you can look that up on the web because I've got it there, you know, because here's the biggest man in computers saying the high point of traveling across the world was to meet me, you know, which is good.
good for me. You know, I like I like to. Well, be, of course, I'm very humble and very uh, so on. But I, I occasionally boast, which I'm doing now. So um, he said the big the big thing Dijkstra said was about the glitch, and that he checked around, and the key people that he talked to didn't know about the glitch. You know, so that's the top computer man, top computer software man, saying that he already knew about CAT before he got to Utrecht for this boring conference. But uh, but that led him in, and that and that's on the web. You know, his report on his meeting. But no one knew about the glitch, and is that the is that so? Have you ever gotten anyone to see the importance of the glitch, or have you been the only one carrying the standard of this since you realized oh, that it was a problem? Okay, okay, okay. Now, um, before the British got out of computers, <coughs> the government gave um, Manchester University a million pounds, like 30 million pounds, to develop the biggest, fastest computers because the British were ahead of the Americans before they decided to get out because mm. it caused unemployment. And, um, and uh, Tom Kilburn was the big name in computers in Britain. And um, they were doing what I call the Atlas. Do you remember the three computers, Sirius, Orion, then Atlas? Mm -hmm. Manchester <laughs> University was linked with Ferranti doing the Atlas or the Manchester Mark I or Manchester Mark V. And uh, the engineers went off designing the machine and they came to Talbert Kilburn and said there's a fundamental problem and he said nonsense you know so he went home and he designed around the problem and brought it back and the engineers that's you know not the scientists showed that that didn't work so he went home and designed again and that that didn't work anyway a, a low-level man was Kinnamont uh, uh, something Kinnamont, who's dead now. And uh, he then moved and became professor at a Russell University. You don't know that the top 10 universities in Britain are, are Russell, because now we have a, a university in every village, you know, everywhere there's universities. But, they, but so you have to know what is a real university. So he went to another real university, which was Newcastle, mm. you see. And he wrote a book on the glitch. And uh, it's worth mentioning this because half the book's about me, you see. So, so you have a professor writing a book about the glitch. And what is this book called? Do you remember? Um, he who hesitates is lost he who yes and david Kinnaman. i see this david j kinnaman he who hesitates is lost yeah that's right that's about the glitch all right so there's so there's definitely sort of resources that people if they're interested in following up on this question and understanding more about it there's reading that they can do and you have you have a lot on your website about this as well and i want to mention that i whether we we were planning this car this interview i'd completely forgotten about the kinnaman book and i only thought of it yes yes the day before yesterday and i said you can before the car the interview which we're having now you have to read the book which you can't because um, 
And yesterday I was desperately trying to read the book because I found I hadn't read half of it, you see. But half, the other half is about me. Oh, that's the point. Maybe I'd only read the half about me. And <laughs> <laughs> and I told you to read the book. So hopefully you'll be reading the book a bit, but it's about 180 pages. I think I'm, I appear on page 84, and it's all about the glitch, yeah. And, and what you have there is, um, I, I forgot this, uh, as you're approaching the traffic lights in your car, um, the, light, the light goes yellow and goes red, and you stop. Or the light goes yellow, but you've gone too far, and you carry on. Now, you have to decide uh, wh whether it's gone yellow so early that you must stop or not. That's the glitch. And um, what happens is um, you're, you automatically know that it's 30 yards from the yellow light. Um, if you're more than 30 yards from it, you'll stop. If you're less than 30 yards from it, you'll, you'll not stop. But then you make a judgment over whether it's more or less than 30 yards. Mm. Now, um, the problem is if it's, only, um, if it's only one yard before or one yard after, then you take a certain amount of time. But if it's an inch before or an inch after, you take 10 times as much that, that time deciding, you see. So the closer you are to the critical point, the longer it takes you to, to decide whether to stop or not. And in the critical thing, you end up stopped in the middle of the crossroads and, and you're charged with dangerous driving and you go to jail and so on. But so statistically, we all go to jail. You see. <laughs> the unfortunate things happen. The other one, according to Kinnaman, is you, you drive on the wrong side of the road. So you, you're coming along here to enter the, what we call the motorway, the freeway. And, and he's coming along here, and you have to decide whether to go in front of him or behind him. And the, the, you have 50 meters to decide, you see, and it takes you a certain length. And occasionally you can't decide, and, and you stop there, or, or you don't stop, or you, or you crash, you see. And so you charge with dangerous driving and go to jail or lose your license or whatever. But it's so statistically, each one of us can lose our license and be a dangerous driver and that kind of thing. And we should have mentioned that uh, well before this, um, this interview. Uh, and did a, did a solution to this problem ever occur to you in all of these years? Did you, did you ever like, have any sense of what could be done to remediate this problem? Now, that you've put your finger on why it's avoided. Why? Because there is no solution, um, these little men, you know, the professors and textbook writers and the politicians will not go near this subject because it is profound. You cannot attach mathematics to it. You, you know, you, you can't really bury it in mathematics and look very wise and say it's this long equation. So, so it, 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 in, in our culture, it, it doesn't fit. Hmm. And I thought there were, like, a, as I said to you a few days ago, I thought there would be other problems like this, but it looks as though it's unique. Hmm. You know, there's nothing like this, which is, which is 
very strange. And you really believe there's no solution available? Is 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 that right? You you don't think that there's you you think it's it's not something that can be fixed? The the narrowing that chair is to being absolutely vertical on the two legs. The longer it takes for the chair to fall, you know, and and when you get to within one millimeter of, of the perfect thing it's not that it doesn't fall but it takes an enormous amount of time to fall but couldn't you i mean hypothetically this is getting deep in the weeds of analogy but couldn't you design the computer system so that the chair never ends up on two legs no sorry maybe i haven't said it clearly to illustrate for you because there are people hopefully watching this. Sure. A should get a chair, balance it on two legs. Well, this, this makes perfect sense, right? You have equilibrium at the closer you are to this point that's balanced, the, the slower it's going to fall out. Like that makes perfect sense. My point is, is it possible to design a computer system that doesn't run into this decision point? If you design a, a piece of hardware or software and that looks for this problem, the piece of circuitry has to decide whether it's a critical case or not. You see, mm -hmm. has to say, no, this is within one millimeter, so we've got to deal with this specially. But you see, supposing it's uh, within 1.001 millimeters, you see, it has to decide. So any, any, any system which looks at the case where the chair is standing on two legs um, and say, oh, no, this is the critical case, it will have to decide whether it's a critical case or not. Would an analog and clock be, be any safer? Like, this seems like it's a digital problem. Do, could we save this crisis by having an analog mediator? We, we don't have analog... No, we don't right now, but would that be a potential solution? Yeah, which has not, never occurred to anybody except you at this moment. Yeah! <laughs> <laughs> Fixing that problems! Needs, that needs consideration. Um, I, I was, I was um, sent to Birmingham to stand outside our computer. This wasn't for political reasons. And, and the computer was £25,000, which is like you know, half a million now. I'm standing in front. And in the next kiosk in the exhibition was an analog computer, and it was £25,000. Our computer was £25,000 digital, and their computer, and we're talking, uh, you know, 1960 or 1962. And the problem was we, with a digital computer, you can simulate an analog computer. You see, sure. You can pretend that you can program it to be an analog computer, but an analog computer cannot be programmed to look like a digital. So, so they were dead men. You know, they're in the next kiosk with a, a machine the same price, and 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 I'm going to win. We could, if only we could bring them here today. They might have a job to do after all. Indeed. Yeah, but 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 you. Oh, an analog is um, 
when when you when when you if you've got a motor car um and then um you've got the springs on the wheel you you know uh, and you've got the wheel and you've got the car rocks and and various things happen now what you do is you build electrical circuitry to simulate parts of the car uh, and then you let it run you see but um but it's it's an analog so so the the strength of the the springs of the car there's sort of a bit of mathematics you know and and you let the whole thing run so it's it's a real analogy it, it's an electronic analogy of the real thing that's what the analog computer is and, and the trouble is of course that um that errors build up you, you, you know you you do this but if you say 3 3.4 rather than 3.5 should you really say 3.40000 or 3.50 no and so there's a slight error every time you go through one step in an analog computer and the errors build up mm. now in a digital computer they don't you know, because but if it was just a matter of voltage, right? It's either going to be over the line or not. If it's just a single matter of of a voltage being weighed, right? There's going to be a solution that falls one way or the other at the end of the day. Uh, if it's a pure a single a analog decision, right? Oh, I didn't get that. No, I'm not sure well, whether you're talking analog or digital. Well, if the problem is these half values are crashing the system, then you you have the potential with an analog system to pass on uh, that. No, no, no. no, analog computer will not have the glitch problem. Right. And so if you have an analog clock inside of a digital computer, then you wouldn't have There's the glitch. There's no either. clock in an analog computer. No, no, no. In a digital computer, if you have an analog clock rather than a digital clock, then you wouldn't have this problem. Is what he's saying. <laughs> <laughs> No, the, the concept of, of of an analog clock is a non-concept. It's just just a clock is a clock. Now, analog computer means decision-making. You, you have a, a value which is uh, three point seven two volts or three point seven three volts or three. It's actually a voltage on a wire. Mm -hmm. That's right. In a digital computer, you have whatever is the series of ones and zeros representing 3.7 volts and it's exact you know and 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 you have the clock to say we'll do the next process of adding those numbers together or subtracting them or doing the square root or whatever with analog there's, there's no mathematics mm -hmm. no program so this was your this was sort of your first experience with dealing with the suppression of ideas, <clears throat> but perhaps even more interesting uh, is what you came to discover about electromagnetic theory in general. And we want to be able to spend at least a whole hour or more on that subject. I think we'll get into it next time, hopefully. But this seems like a natural point to wrap up this discussion. And when it comes to electricity, we are brainwashed um, about a battery, two wires and a lamp, and you connect them and the lamp lights. And we're told this thing, which is um, 
but we're told it and we're told it again, we're told it again, we're told it again. It's in the books. Uh, and we end up like, like I, I ended up not, not questioning this, um, you know, for decades. And um, it, it's quite extraordinary the way, the way uh, the, let's call it the paradigm, gets, gets deep into you and you cannot step outside the paradigm. Now, my co-author, Malcolm Davidson, said, um, oh, they, 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 they don't understand, they don't care, um, they, um, yeah, the, it, 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 it's, it's, it's quite extraordinary that, um, that we all get trapped in, in what we've been taught. Because we don't understand that, that um, we are parrots who have been trained in, in this stuff. And then in the exams, you see, when I was principal lecturer at a college, I actually taught them and I set the exams. You know, it really was a closed loop. Yeah. Now, normally, the examiner is not the same person as the teacher, hmm. but it's essentially the same. You know, they have the same hymn book. And so you're... T- you're testing the person on what the teachers taught you out of the textbooks and the examiner knows the textbook and it's a closed loop. And this goes on for decades, you see, uh, for six hours a day, you know, so, so we're very, very heavily trained, all of us. And, and it doesn't work. You know, it breaks down because, because science advances by revolution. Now, revolution is very destructive. It destroys careers. It destroys reputations. So people, you can't have a career in science or even in technology. You're too vulnerable, you see. So you defend yourself uh, by, by blocking the scientific advance. It was inevitable. And, and the ultimate destination was COVID. And the one after that is worse. The, the, the first clear one was AIDS. Then climate change came and in order to get funding uh, you have to speak as one voice you have to be unanimous because the funding committee i think you just got us kicked off of youtube actually <laughs> <laughs> we're not allowed to mention any of those four words on youtube anymore so uh what? we'll bleep them out don't worry <laughs> what four words uh oh, i can't know. mention them of course so <laughs> All right, uh, Mr. Cat, we're gonna we're gonna uh, we're gonna wrap we're gonna this. Pull the string on this episode for today, and we will be back next time with the cat question and the the death of the last magical fluid in physics. Thank you very much. Good night. Good night. Thank you.